Have you had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud Ninefin, our suite of podcasts where we bring you new information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high yield leverage loans and restructuring spaces. We also have our US podcast, which features discussions with members of the North American Levfin market with US editor Will Cager-Smith. So be sure to check in every second Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today when we'll be looking at core redemption mechanics and doing a deep dive into PDA. We had so much to say on these two topics that we didn't have time for ESG this week, but I hope listeners can forgive us and please tune back in in a fortnight for your usual ESG fix. We'll get to the Covenant close-up soon, but first, the Levin Wrap. It's crickets in Europe once again this week as we here at Ninefin wish the market a very happy summer holiday period. We're looking to what's to come in the medium term and we expect Fed Rigoni and House of HR to make an appearance soon. We've had very optimistic guesses at 15 deals in September alone from the sell side, uh, but others aren't expecting the market to turn on full blast until 2023. If you have a guess at when you think the market will return to 2021 levels, email us at team at ninefin.com. Next up, we have the Covenant close-up. Today, I'm going to be speaking with the head of European High Yield Research, Brian Deering. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, Brian. Thanks, Kat. It's great to be here, as always. Um, He's joining remotely. And we've got the lovely Nathan Mitchell, a credit analyst who's here with me now. Hi, Kat. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, Nathan. It's very exciting to have you guys on. So as far as I understand, you guys are going to be talking about redemption mechanics trends today. So so our listeners know um, we've been inspired to do this podcast segment because Nathan and Brian recently wrote a fantastic piece called Call Me Back, uh, Redemption Features in High Yield Bonds. Uh, It's a Ninefin educational. It's up on ninefin.com slash insights. Uh, And it's a great read, but we're going to focus on the kind of focal points or just a few points from the article. There's a lot more um, to read on the website. Brian, why don't you kick us off? So today we're going to talk about redemptions, which isn't typically a very sexy topic. So we thought instead of focusing in our latest Ninefin Educational um, just on redemptions from a legal perspective, we brought in uh, Nathan from our credit team to kind of give additional credit-related insights, which hopefully will make it even more useful to our um, subscribers. So firstly, I'm going to briefly explain the basic mechanics uh, of redemptions, and then we're going to explore some of those trends and some of the interesting insights that Nathan found. So uh, the basics are that um, bonds typically have a non-call period. And the purpose of this is to ensure that investors don't receive their money back too quickly after they made their investment decision. So, for example, in a five-year bond, you'd have a two-year non-call period. And for a seven-year bond, you'd have a a um, three-non-call period. And during that period, the only way for the issuer to redeem their notes would be to use a make-hole, which is essentially a net present value calculation. And we set this out in more detail in our uh, educational. As with most of the things we're going to discuss today, if you want to see more detail or if you want to see some of the data set out in graph format, go ahead and go over to the um, to the educational itself. So the typical non-call period, uh, once it expires, you have the call schedule. And in the call schedule, 
you're moving towards par by having the coupon each year. So you have two years of non-call, then the first year you have the coupon and you can redeem at that price. So say it's a 4% coupon in the, uh, the first year of the call schedule, you would be able to redeem at 102, then it would step down to 101. And then the following year, uh, being the fifth year of a five-year bond, then you can just redeem at par. And this is just for fixed rate notes. For floating rate notes, you can typically redeem at uh, 101%. And this is just a place that the market seems to have settled on, and it doesn't really depend on the coupon whatsoever. And the purpose of this is just knowing the the way a floating rate note works and that it can, can move adversely for an issuer. Uh, after a year, uh, I guess the market settled that it felt reasonable for an issuer to be able to redeem those notes and, and refinance. Although you do see some odd deals at 100% or 102%, but typically it's 101. One other thing I'll say on the basic mechanics here is that for sustainability-linked bonds, what we're seeing is in addition to some coupon rate step-ups if certain KPIs aren't met, um, we're also seeing redemption step-ups so that if an issuer fails one of its sustainability-linked metrics, the, the redemption will actually become more expensive. And I think with this, uh, that's enough. And I'll just pass this over to Nathan now, who's going to sort of dive into some of the trends. Sure. Thanks, Brian. Um, yeah, so it's kind of generally accepted across the market that redemption terms have become more positive over the last decade or so. So it's nice to be able to put the data to the numbers and actually really visualize it and how redemption terms have uh, changed over the last decade. So starting with tenors, we've seen the six or uh, sorry, the seven or eight year deals go out of favor for the shorter term five year deals. This itself creates an a increased need for more frequent refinancing, right? And then on this, it'll be interesting to see if this, this uh, reverses in the current downturn and if issuers want to lock in the rates for longer. Albeit this may be more expensive uh, if rates begin to fall shorter because they would have benefited from being able to refinance the five-year deal now. Now onto the, the actual call schedule redemption mechanics and the different ten trends we've seen around it. So not only have we seen the non-call period shrink across five-year, seven-year, and eight-year deals, we've also seen the call premium uh, decrease sooner in the call schedule, making it easier for issuers to redeem their notes sooner and at a cheaper price. Again, this maybe contribute to the uh, increase in refinancing we've seen in recent years. So it'd be interesting over the next few years how this changes and whether we'll see any increases in the, uh, in the tenors and it push back on the aggressiveness of this term. Uh, so with that, I'll hand it back to Brian to go over uh, the equity call. So thinking about the equity call uh, option, the idea here is that if an issuer does an IPO, for example, they may want to take some of the proceeds and lower their debt uh, load overall. And usually the bond mechanics will allow an issuer to redeem 35% or increasing uh, in the market to 40%, uh, so long as a certain percentage of the overall bonds remain outstanding. Um, and this is quite handy for, for uh, issuers. And we're seeing some broadening of the ability for the issuer to use this by moving away from simply just an IPO, as we would kind of understand it in common parlance, to also including the, you know, the offering of equity in private transactions, as well as uh, private equity injections uh, into the company. So it's allowing a little bit more flexibility when, when, when cash comes in for the purpose of uh, increasing equity to be able to use that to pay down debt. Um, so I think with that, I'll just hand this back over to Nathan, who's going to go through some more trends on this. 
Definitely. So what we found really interesting with our equity clause is actually there's in certain deals, we've noticed that they can signal potential IPO or exit plans. The most recent example we've seen is uh, with the Very Group, which had a very unusual equity clause that allowed them to redeem all of the notes at uh, 102% in the first year. This is quite the difference compared with the usual 40% redemption at par plus coupon. I think we're now over the time period that Very Group could actually use this uh, unusual equity clause. But there have been recent reports around revive IPI plans, which uh, suggest that it was actually in their plans when they did issue the bonds, but they've delayed it due to uh, current market conditions. In terms of the actual data we're tracking, 90% of deals we've tracked in the last two years have actually featured an equity claw. This is up from around 70% in 2015, and the increase has been mainly driven by the uh, unsecured deals that now include the, the claw. So now with that, I'll hand back to Brian to touch on the uh, 10% at 103 redemption term. Thanks a lot, Nathan. So yeah, we'll just finish out talking about one of the final uh, key uh, redemption mechanics, which is the 10% at 103 feature. And this is something that's sort of arisen to allow issuers to just have a little bit more flexibility to redeem their notes uh, during the non-call period. And what it means is that during each 12-month period on a rolling basis, they can redeem 10% of the outstanding notes at 103%. And that sort of uh, ignores whatever the coupon is. So if the coupon is 8%, they still redeem it at 103%, which is obviously a significant improvement over whatever the make whole would be. And this is, um, you know, potentially controversial for um, investors if they don't want to receive their money back. But I think the point is if an issuer is being uh, successful in running their business and they have cash on balance sheet, then perhaps they should be allowed to redeem some of their notes, again, reduce overall leverage and their debt load, um, et cetera. But as always, you know, we're trying to, issuers are trying to see if they can increase flexibility and increase their maneuverability to ensure that they're in the strongest position possible. And you really can't blame them. So last year, we saw this in 40% of sponsored deals and uh, over 35% uh, across the board. And this is up quite a bit from prior years. And there's been a drastic increase in the use of this provision from about 2020 onwards. And I think now we'll close out this podcast uh, portion with a little discussion by Nathan on some of the red flag issues. And this is a, a feature that we always have in our NineFin Educational. So if you'd like to see this um, uh, in more detail, go ahead and go there. But I'll pass it over to Nathan to run through some of the, the key issues you'd want to look out for. Sure. Thanks, Brian. So we had four main points on our uh, red flag checklist. Uh, firstly, it was to check when the bonds are first callable, what are the premium step downs and at what stage may the issuer likely redeem the notes. And it's important to be aware of this, especially when looking at secondary trading prices to see if that's suggesting that the, the issuer may be able to redeem the notes uh, in the short term or perhaps they're trading below par and it suggests that they won't use the, uh, the call schedule. Secondly, it, on our checklist is to check the, uh, the cheapest way for an issuer to redeem their notes. It may not be to use the call schedule directly and to redeem 100% of the notes. They may use some sort of blended approach, including open market purchases. Something we haven't touched on too is also how uh, sustainability linked targets could impact the call prices for certain uh, redemption terms. And then finally, it's important, as mentioned with the very group, to check if the equity claim uh, implies any future plans from ownership on exiting. Next up, I have the deep discussion where we discuss a topic a little bit more deeply. 
So today I have with me uh, Emic McNally, a distress analyst here at Ninefin. Thank you so much for being with us today, Emmett. Hi, Kat. Thanks for welcoming me. <laughs> uh, we're always excited to have a debut podder on, but uh, Emmett is no stranger to the world of distrust debt. Um, he recently did a couple of big deep dives into PDA, uh, known as uh, Philips Domestic Appliances. So last year, this company uh, was carved out of Royal Philips and bought by uh, the Chinese-based private equity house Hill House, which is um, a sponsor of great repute in the region. Uh, They had big plans to uh, expand business in China. Um, But yeah, they've come up against a few issues uh, now. Uh, They they work in the discretionary consumer segment, selling uh, air fryers and coffee machines and also uh, appliances such as air purifiers um so of course consumer discretionary is a difficult place to be right now uh but i think that emmet um you can correct me if i'm wrong here but i get the feeling that pda has issues on multiple fronts could you could you give us a summary of some of those issues that the, the business is facing right now yeah of course at a sector level the main issue is the challenge right now in consumer discretionary um you have rising inflation rising rates and tightening policy expectations for a recession in many regions and those combined are contributing to tightening household budgets the knock-on effect of that is that consumers are spending more on necessities like food and energy and less on discretionary products this is a negative trend for pda as it is any other company in consumer discretionary right now On the back of that, bond spreads have widened for PDA more than the majority of its peers in the consumer space uh, year to date. That's because of the sector challenges that I just spoke of, but also because there are some idiosyncratic risks or challenges facing PDA. One of those risks is that PDA is a net purchaser of dollars and renminbi, the Chinese currency. Both of these have appreciated against the euro year to date. And that means that PDA is having to pay higher prices to source commodities, parts and products. This is a transaction effect. And we saw some of that play out in Q2, and it will likely continue to be a headwind for H2. Now, the company does hedge its exposure to its, uh, its net exposure to FX. But over time, it does have to take real rates as its hedging policy is on a three months rolling basis. On top of transaction effects, there is, of course, input cost inflation and logistics and transport inflation. Um, global supply chain pressure is easing and shipping costs are coming down, though prices are still at an elevated level. And there is always the possibility of supply shocks. Um, specifically for PDA, the company is facing ongoing challenges sourcing sufficient semiconductor chips. And this means that there is not enough stock to replenish the market for certain products, especially their flagship products, which are their higher margin products. And then China as well, Kat, you touched on China and that. Um, that's one of the pillars of the buyout that uh, the company faced some challenges in China during 2020 with the onset of the pandemic. Um, Consumer spending dramatically and suddenly shifted online and the company wasn't quite equipped to handle that. So sales dropped quite significantly in the year. Uh, One of the key pillars of Hill House's strategy is to try and regain market share and try and regain a standing in in China and change the model to a go-to-market model, which serves online consumers much better. 
that's really in terms of issues facing the company right now th those are the headlines and like i said you know bond spreads thus far have suffered those idiosyncratic risks and you know our view is that the company is like to, to continue to suffer those risks and okay fascinating um in your most recent deep dive you looked at a, a leverage for the business from a couple of different standpoints of course, the company is reporting a certain leverage, but uh, you looked at it from a number of different perspectives. How bad could leverage be right now? Yeah, good question. I think, you know, generally people are ready to accept that credit metrics for a company like PDA, where it's just been spun out of a, a much larger conglomerate, are going to be adjusted and, just, you know, in some instances heavily adjusted from the outset because you have separation costs, you have transaction costs, you have various costs that the company needs to incur to sort of establish itself as a standalone. That's not unique to PDA. And in isolation, it's it's not a major credit concern. What is more important, I would say, is how a company closes the gap between, say, reported EBITDA or even preferably cash EBITDA and adjusted EBITDA. Uh, this is where the credit risk lies for PDA. Um, the company has a separation plan that runs to 2025, and it will continue to have some level of separation costs to this point. This means that actual leverage, as in leverage based on unadjusted EBITDA, will remain elevated versus reported uh, to this point. And then there is, of course, the risk that costs overrun, and this would make the difference more pronounced and perhaps more protracted as well. Um, that's one point on leverage. And then the second point is that um, the company is likely on a re-leveraging trajectory for the second half of 2022. Uh, reported leverage as of Q2 was 6.3 times. And because of the headwinds the company is facing on input cost inflation, lowering consumer uh, spending and so on, um, we see report leverage as per reported um, getting possibly closer to eight times or above as of year end. Um, so a big difference there. <laughs> yeah, a big difference there. And also 6.3 times as of Q2 is up from 5.1 as of Q1. So the trajectory is quite steep and it's likely to get more steep as we head towards the second half of 2022. Um, and then to touch on what you said around sort of the various different leverage metrics that I talk about in some of my recent reports, um, the company states leverage um, using an EBITDA before separation costs which are very high currently, understandably. Um, if you include separation costs in EBITDA, leverage could get to as high as 25 times as of year end. And that's a good illustration of how much unadjusted leverage is different to adjusted leverage and how big that gap is and how much work there is to do there in terms of closing that gap. Fantastic. Um, so as you mentioned at the beginning, PDA definitely does have a few idiosyncratic issues, uh, but its competitors are suffering many of the same issues uh, from a macro perspective. How are they reacting to those? PDA has sort of various peers. I think our nine-fin view is that the two best peers are Group SEB and DeLonghi. The company also competes with the likes of Dyson, Bosch, Panasonic, Electrolux and so on, though the crossover in product is not as clear with those as it is with SCB and DeLonghi. Both SCB and DeLonghi faced a tough H1 2022 on the back of FX headwinds, as did PDA, and general input cost inflation compounded by falling consumer spending. Uh, both SCB and DeLonghi responded by spending comparatively more than they had previously on advertising and promotion, or A&P, 
and R&D, which is research and development. Um, SEB spent 10 million more on R&D and 16 million more on A&P and H1 2022. Uh, these may not sound like big changes, but the impact is felt when figures, when these figures annualize, should I say. We have less visibility on spending at DeLonghi, but the company noted an 88 million euro headwind in its 1H22 EBITDA from increased A&P product cost inflation and additional warehousing costs. So what we saw for both peers is that they spent more on advertising and promotion to effectively manage that top line and retain their market share and so on. And the reason this matters for PDA is because PDA also spent more on advertising and promotion and or indeed during H1 2022. And we believe that this increased spending could become a trend, which would impact margins going forward. There is some competitive pressure and sorry, interdependency, we would argue, here between the peers in terms of retaining market share and competitiveness. So I would say that um, spending at the three peers and certainly at PDA will be somewhat correlated to what is happening for SEB and DeLonghi. I was reading your article previously and it sounds like um, management are being a bit cagey. Um, PDA is led by uh, Henk de Jong. Um, he was uh, previously the chief of international markets for Philips, where he was responsible for driving business development in international markets outside of greater China and North America. Um, so, yeah, I, I got the sensation they were being a bit cagey. What information are you missing? Is, is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I think cagey uh, is, is one way to characterize it. I think they're certainly being cautious. Um, and that's understandable given the macro environment they're facing and the uncertain outlook and so on. That being said, I think there are, you know, there is limited disclosure or there are disclosure gaps, so to speak. Uh, and there are bits of information that are missing that sort of make it hard to form a complete view on the on the credit. I would say in particular, though, those are pricing. Um, management noted on the Q2 call, which happened last week, that H122 sales growth of 3% was driven equally by pricing and volume. And that was after they were asked the question on what impact pricing and volume had had. They hadn't said it in prepared remarks. Now, we know that certain high price products such as coffee machines and air fryers did well during the first half of the year. And this may indicate that growth from pricing actions alone was in fact limited. Um, this is concerning as, as it points to weak pricing power which doesn't quite fit with the company's strong brand. Um, so there's a bit of a missing narrative there, and it would be good to have some more insight or have some more color on that from management. They were a little bit ambiguous on that during the H1, uh, sorry, Q2 call. Um, and then briefly on top of that as well, they talk about um, value creation initiatives. They got a 51 million add back to LTM Q2 EBITDA for value creation initi initiatives. And this is obviously a big part of the, the credit story because they're incurring um, very high separation costs, as I said before. But again, we have very limited insight on these value creation initiatives and what is included in them. And, and again, it's hard to form a complete view on those without having a little bit more insight from management. Hopefully they, uh, hopefully the PDA management team hears this podcast and <laughs> takes some notes for the next earnings call. Come on, guys, be a bit more candid. <laughs> um, I, I guess to wrap up, because we don't have too much time left, but if you had to have an, a, an overall opinion, if you had to kind of take a view, where, where would you sit on this credit? Yeah, 
Um, I, I think touching on what I said just now, it's hard to form a complete view on the credit right now because of these transparency gaps or these disclosure gaps, should I say. Um, transparency is transparency is quite good, but but disclosure in terms of some of these key questions, I think, is a little bit lacking. Um, so I think it's hard to form a complete view. Um, we maintain our view that we outlined last week, which is that we think PDA is a potential underperformer candidate because of the idiosyncratic risks it's facing in terms of its separation and so on. And there's, you know, obviously some execution risk there in terms of overrunning on costs. And I'm sure people might look to the likes of um, Upfield or, you know, that Flora Food Group or Tissing Group Elevator as examples or read across in terms of costs overrunning what was initially envisaged to establish the business as a standalone. Um, from PDA's perspective, the, the separation plan looks like it's on track. And I'm mostly positive on this, though, like I said, there's certainly execution risk and it's something that um, is worth watching closely going forward. It's going to be a tough H2. Earnings are going to uh, suffer, you know, the macro headwinds. Leverage is likely to, to go up. It's really just a case of whether or not um, these prices are these risks are priced in. We saw a big reaction in bond spreads after earnings last week, bond prices initially dropped about five points and then recovered to end the day about three points lower. So there's certainly some volatility in prices based on, um, you know, earnings risks. And I think this is exacerbated by, shall we say, the, the ambiguity or some of the cloudiness that there is as to the outlook and, and certain points on earnings and metrics. And that's all we have time for this week. And if you do want to read more about some of these situations, head to ninefin.com slash insights, where you can see some of our content in front of the paywall. Or you can drop us an email at team at ninefin.com. We're always keen to hear your suggestions for topic ideas, your comments on our discussion and your feedback on the platform. If you like the podcast, don't forget to like and share it. Tune in for the US edition next week. I'll be back for the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.